We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. Uh, we've been on a little bit of a hiatus lately, but we are back this week reviewing or taking a look at 2007's The Mists, written and directed by Frank Darabont. Here's a clip. There's something in the mist. It took John Lee. Screw that. I'm getting to my car. Mister, no! cloud the mills down a rumpster some kind of chemical explosion has to be written and directed by Frank Darabont and based on the, I believe it's a novella by Stephen King. We'll get into that a little bit later, uh, whether it's a short story, novella, something like that. Um, all right, joining me today, of course, is Ricky D. Hello, Patrick. It is indeed a novella. It is a novella. Okay, good Good to clear that up. Uh, definitely something we don't want to make the mistake of mislabeling it, uh, not in today's times. Um, and also joining us is... Uh, Dan Bransfield, artist, animator, all sorts of things. Man about San Francisco town, Dan Bransfield. That's one way of saying it. Thank you. Of the Chicago nice Bransfield. Of the Chicago Bransfield. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Dan Bransfield of Chicago Bransfield. Dan has actually read the book, so we're we're going to be interested in hearing uh, about some of the comparisons here with this, with the movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I read it. I was probably twelve years old, but when I read it, so it's going back, and then I have, and then, and then. I guess I have also the experience of not only 
reading it and watching this movie, but also playing the the 1985 like video game. <laughs> I, I forgot a, about that. A text, text. A text adventure. Right. Wow, you've got a lot of missed uh, knowledge. Then, <laughs> I did not listen to. There is a a radio program too. There's there's got radio like uh, a radio play play, play um, of the mist, which. I remember seeing coming around, but I never, I never did listen to it. Which I'm, I'm, I, I think that would translate pretty well, actually. Well, Patrick, I do have some news for you. The actual film adaptation is almost page by page, word for word, the same as the novella, except for the ending and a relationship between two characters. Now, I love this movie. I saw this movie on opening night. And I will never forget the crowd reaction when the movie ended. Some people were really upset, and some people were really upset for the wrong reason. In other words, they were mad at the movie. You chose this movie. Not too long ago, we reviewed The Fog. And for some strange reason, people always think that The Mist is a remake of The Fog and or they are the same movie. I want to know why you chose The Mist, and do you prefer The Mist over The Fog? Uh, all right. Well, I chose The Mist, first of all, because I think it's a great example of how people can go crazy when one little thing happens. I couldn't say anything else. Uh, how, how, groups, <laughs> how groups can kind of break down. Let's put it that way. A society can break down um, when there's an external threat. How about that? Uh, I shouldn't say little thing. It is a, it is a very, very real threat. Um, but I also I took this as an example of a movie that I wasn't necessarily – warm to when I first saw it. I didn't dislike it or anything, but it's a movie that as I've watched it over time, I've grown an appreciation for it. There was something about the cheesy effects that at the time, I I don't know, were a little off-putting to me. And plus, I've never been a big fan of handheld camera, but it works in this movie really well. The more I've seen this movie, the more I actually uh, agree with the stylistic choice, and we can get into that all later. But yeah, it's a movie, it's an example of a movie that took me some time to kind of come around to and uh i like to i like to explore those every now and again to see why so so you were one of those people at the cinema who disliked the movie when it ended and got me really mad um i'm actually i'm actually not really surprised a lot of people mention the effects i think the effects are actually pretty good for the time it was done by cafe effects which no longer exists the studio is responsible for some amazing movies like for example pan's labyrinth yeah, at the time you can you can really you know it's CGI, but I mean it's like I don't know, man. Like he didn't really have a big budget, and and he no. did it really shortly in a short time span too, right? Then he turned it around really fast. Six weeks, which for Frank Darabont is uh, impressive. Um, yeah, because he he wanted to make this movie for like the longest time, and he actually ended up filming two Stephen King adaptations prior to the mist because he couldn't get the green light and he just didn't know how to do the special effects but i hear you except for i disagree with the camera work uh, i have no problem in frank darabont bringing in the entire crew from the shield one of the greatest shows ever with one of the greatest endings for any <laughs> tv show ever to come on to this film set to film the movie because one of the things i like the most about it is actually the camera work um which is unusual for a frank darabont movie and also, he shot it in 35mm, so he wanted to get that grainy look because he specifically specifically wanted people to see it in black and white, which they later released on, I think it was a double-disc DVD slash Blu-ray set, which is fantastic and ah. the best way to watch the movie. 
Oh, I didn't know that. It makes sense because this, there's a there's definitely a Night of the Living Dead vibe here. I, I, and I want to get make this clear. I don't I don't dislike the camera work now. I, at the time, I've always had a thing against handheld camera work for the most part. Um, and whenever I see it, there's like an instant cringe reaction to me, especially when there's a lot of shakiness. You know, <laughs> it's just. But I do think it works really well in this movie, and I do like totally agree with his his choice in that style. Because of that kind of Night of the Living Dead vibe that he pulls off here, that very small town monster movie kind of 1960s, late 1960s feel, uh, I think it, he he absolutely nails it. So, and by the way, I, it's hard to pick between the fog and the mist because they're both great, but for completely di- different reasons. Uh, I don't know. I that's a tie to me. I think they're both great. I'm gonna wuss out on that one. So the thing about camera work and one of the reasons why I love it so much, yes, it makes the movie look good and more chaotic. And that kind of coincides with the action and reactions from people because it's chaos within the supermarket. But it's also because because the camera and cameras are roaming around, everyone is kind of technically in frame and nobody knows exactly when the camera is going to catch them. And because this is such an actor's piece, like it's like the closest you would ever get to Broadway in terms of like making a movie because the actors always have to be in character because they never know when they will be in frame. And one of the, one of the best things about the movie is the actual cast and the performances Frank Darabont gets from the cast. And it was really crucial and important that he let the actors in on the fact that they are always in frame and to never let their guard down. So there's a lot of reasons why I like this movie, but Dan, you read the original uh, story. So what's your take on the film adaptation? No, it's 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 incredibly loyal to it. I would say, like it's incredible, it, uh, evocative of the novella, uh, like and like like you said, up and up until the the very uh, end, which uh, we can talk, you know, talk about later. But um, I would say it's like a note for note in all the best ways, and then whatever liberties it takes. It's been it's been a long time since I read it and played it. Um, that. Uh, some of the things are are, uh, are are a little bit misty to me, no pun intended there. But um, I, uh, I'd i say it's incredibly faithful. The only difference apart from the ending is the fact that the character that Lori Holden plays, the blonde, in yes. the book, they are having an affair. And in the movie, they are not. Yeah, There's just an right. implied connection between well, them in the and, movie. And, and Mrs. Carmody is calling like her like his strumpet or whatever, his whore or whatever. Like in the movie, which doesn't quite uh, land. I mean, I guess it does because she's she's allied with him, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And they and they've had they formed some kind of bond. So yes, her yes, eyes, yes, that it works. Is something it, yes. you know, unchaste. Yes. Uh, right, now let right. me ask you this: Did this book actually, or did this novella stand out to you in the collection? Was this something that you? I mean, obviously, you you say you can remember it. And you read it when you were twelve, so that's a good sign that you can remember yeah. it at all. No, absolutely, because I'm like I I had gotten um, Stephen King's uh, oh god, what was the other one? Night Shift. It was another um, like compilation, like uh, maybe like a year before of some of his earlier short stories. Uh, but I don't think that one began with like a big a big novella. So th- this one stood out because it had um, this this large story up up at uh it was front loaded with um and 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 funnily enough i got this book at uh the local grocery store at the checkout line um like at the impulse purchase uh uh book book checkout um at at the at the register 
Um, a small and, town. I'm yes, it is at a small t at a, a rural small town grocery store chain in Wisconsin. Uh, it's called Sentry, uh, S E N T R Y. Um, and uh, so, it, it, uh, upon starting reading it, as soon as I got home, I immediately ima imagined Sentry, like the layout. Which is great too, because like the uh, the description, you don't need a lot of work. You don't have to do a lot of work to imagine the surroundings of um, the rows of soup and potato chips and detergent and milk and and the checkout. And you already know what you probably know what Ali looks like, the the store manager, the vest on. Like all of it's like pretty well. Like there's a lot of. Um, uh, detail baggage that already comes with it that you can kind of suss out and, and and grounds puts you in the world right away. And supposedly King thought of the story by being at the grocery store and just imagining what would happen if a pterodactyl suddenly flew. Yes, yes, so. yeah, right, right. That's yeah, a pterodactyl uh, flapping down the yes, flapping down the aisle. Um, For real, uh, that's not a joke. Not no, a joke. Yeah, he, yeah, he's like, what if a what if a pterodactyl? And I think there was like a storm the night before or something too, even. And he's like, "What if there were a, like a leathery pterodactyl like flapping down the aisle?" Yeah. So obviously, this isn't the first King adaptation that Frank Darabont has done. He did the Shawshank Redemption, also a novella, and then the Green Mile, which I believe was a a, a whole a full book, or was that a novella as well? You know, the Green Mile was a series. It was kind of like an old school series, like like what Dickens would do or something like. Um, it was released a periodical, I guess, like uh, portions uh -oh. of it. It was like in 1996. Uh, Stephen King releases, the, like, starts the Green Mile and releases it like every two months or like once a month, something like that. It was kind of, um, it was a, an interesting little experiment at the time. He claimed he didn't know where the story was going, and uh, like we were, he was in the dark as about where the characters were heading as much as we were. Um, the the mist or um, Green, Green Mile. mile. I'm, I'm 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 kind of switching over to the Green Mile. So as the, I, uh, I honestly but, wish um, I didn't know where the Green Mile was going, at least the movie anyway. But it's interesting how Darabont completely went a different way for this movie. Obviously, the Shawshank Redemption was a huge critical hit, and now it's a beloved classic, even though I don't think it really uh, rocked the box office at the time. Um, it was a fantastic movie, and he tried to duplicate that success of the Green Mile. I personally think the Green Mile is almost. I, it's almost torturous at times to watch, uh, personally, but um, it was an interesting, an interesting turn that he takes with the mist going with something so small in a completely different kind of movie. Um, it, it, it's a lot of range. But if you look at Shawshank, like thematically, the movie is really about holding on to hope. And this movie, it's completely the opposite. It's about losing hope because towards the end of the film, the four main characters, quote-unquote, left alive that we know of, lose hope. And that is why the ending is somewhat controversial. Because if he had just sort of, like, waited five minutes, like, all five of those people, including his son, could still be alive. And I think that is how, in a strange way, The Mist links to Shawshank, apart from the Stephen King connection. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And the first time I watched the movie, I you know, I saw it on the big screen, so I didn't really uh, notice this. But the second time, I noticed that Melissa McBride's character, who's at the beginning of the movie, she's the one who's yeah. in, in the shop, and she asks everyone for help. Because won't, she, so, won't someone walk a lady outside or something Exactly, like that? yeah. yeah. She, she needs to go rescue her kids, and nobody will help her. And so sure enough, she's the only one who does the right thing. Like She needs to go save her kids. 
nobody is willing to help her everyone's thinking yeah. about themselves she ends up surviving at the end with her kids because we see her at the end of the movie yeah and i like that yeah and it's weird because we're going to talk about what we would change and not change but the thing about the ending is i like the idea i'm not sold on the execution but having melissa mcbride show up again towards the end is fantastic and also really quick half of the cast starred in the walking dead because frank darabont was the original (laughs) Uh, showrunner of The Walking Dead, right? What I do not understand is why he didn't cast Thomas Jane as the lead Rick Grimes in The Walking Dead because I think he would have been a better fit for the role than Andrew Lincoln. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I don't don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure. Now, uh, Rick, as you may know, you may know I was not a huge fan of The Walking Dead. Um, I liked the first episode, but I know you you guys... uh, are the, at Sound on Sight, the uh, the sorts of there was a podcast, a Walking Dead podcast that that you ran, I believe. Well, you never um, listened to the podcast because all we used to do was I, complain about the show. I I know. Well, Dan and I used That's to actually what we sit used around. To <laughs> we used to we used to be texting our, each other constantly, like with all the complaints about the show. <laughs> I mean, and that was season one. That was like yeah. episode three or something like that, right? Yeah, I made it through two, <laughs> and then it was like, okay, we can't just make fun of this anymore. Yes, um, yes, yes. But it is funny. Like, you see, obviously, you also see guys like William Sadler, who from the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, you see just so many Frank Darabont people. Crossovers. It's <laughs> like a crossover nexus, you know. Um, and the guy who goes out the guy who goes out into the mist with a rope tied around his waist is from Shawshank. He's, he's one of the... He's in every one of his movies. Brian Libby. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, he, yeah. he has yeah. a cameo in every single one of his movies. I think that I think they're like best friends or they went to uh, high school. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. What's, in, great. what's interesting is this, this, I love movies like this that, that uh, basically put people in a, in a, in a tra- they're trapped in a small area and they're forced to contend with it, you know, like an, an assault or a siege by an external yeah. threat. I love movies like The Descent, or you know, we're going to be doing another movie fairly soon that that uh, <laughs> that has a similar premise. Uh, when my next movie comes up, I believe, uh, Dog Soldiers. Um, I love premises like that. They're very simple, and they allow you to get straight to the root of group dynamics. And this movie, to me, that is what it's all about. It's all about group dynamics. I know there's the hope issue at the end, and I always try to figure out like, what is it? about the woman in the end what is he trying to say about the woman in the end surviving because it wasn't like she was it wasn't like the proactive people survived because other people were trying to be proactive and they got cut in half you know (laughs) right right. there's a lot of death from people being proactive uh she just happened to make it marcia gay hardens is kind of like the villain of the movie but the strange thing is that she's just about right every single time she speaks like everything she says sort of like does come true and or she calls it well, and that's the great thing about the group dynamics, because all it takes is for somebody to be the prognosticator, right? Who's getting that you get a few things right. And the next thing you know, everybody's believing you. And as long as you have that kind of leadership mentality, they'll f- follow along. And it shows how the sheep can gotta be, kind of be swayed back and forth by whoever seems most credible in that instant. And, and, and William Sadler, like, flips, like, immediately, right? Upon, when they get back from the, the, the drugstore. Yeah, and it's like because it. I, I've always, I always thought it was because he's sick of feeling bad about his cowardice and uh, his poor uh-huh. decision-making. And so he decides to join the other team because then he can sort of take control of his situation again, and he can be, feel righteous again. 
he can't with the other group. He's always going to be the loser with them because he is an idiot and he made bad decisions. And so for his own mental being, he's like, yeah. And that's exactly he becomes, you know, uh, somebody who's on the offensive as opposed to the defensive all the time with the other group, even though they may be right. doesn't matter. He'll feel better about himself being with the crazy uh, people and speaking of which is bill sadler like was he written by stephen did he was he written into the world by stephen king i mean doesn't it almost feel like this guy like was made for any kind of stephen king <laughs> production <laughs> he does have a great face and a great delivery for this guy so you mean uh, you mean the actual actor the actual yeah, actor yeah. was written <laughs> the way into he the looks world. and talks like, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. 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 I think. I think. I think he was. There's a strong case for it. I think. Yeah. Well, it's funny because Marsha Gay Harden reminds me very much of Carrie. Carrie White. Carrie's mom from Carrie, the film Carrie. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Of course, from yeah. a Stephen King book. Very, very similar. Those two characters. I kind of feel like all of the characters that, and maybe this is a known fact, but all of the characters that Stephen King has written about were based on people he's actually met in real life or actually knows. But, you know, there's a line in the movie that says, if you scare people badly enough, they will do anything and believe anything. And that's the thing. Like, you know, it's we've seen this concept in so many horror films from Dawn of the Dead to Night of the Living Dead and so on and so forth. But you put a bunch of people in a room and you lock them up and there is nothing scarier than watching them each go insane and turn on each other. You even see it in like something like Lord of the Flies only in that. In, in that case, it's like an, an entire island, but still, even an they're island, trapped. yeah, they're trapped. And so, but there's also like the idea of belief and disbelief, and and um, I don't know, like like I can't, I, I I feel like it's weird because I know a lot of people criticize the movie because they say that the acting is over the top, but like at the end of the day I, this is like a b movie it's a straight up yes. b movie it's it's a low budget sci-fi horror film and its main influence what it's trying to be is it's trying to be one of those sci-fi horror movies that but, frank darabont yeah. watched growing up as a kid yes it has very twilight zone uh qualities to it it's like a, it's like a well-produced twilight zone era like twilight zone with a slightly bigger budget you know yeah, it's a, and it's it's kind of a drive-in movie, really. I mean, in yeah, parts of it, there's certainly place. Twilight Zone parts, and I like the whole thing about the military possibly opening a door to another dimension. There's your little sci-fi. That's the Twilight Zone, and of course the ending, obviously. But the monster attacks and, are straight B-movie drive-in theater, right. like kind of. They're not funny because they're they're done really well, and right. obviously Darabont is pretty talented. And I like that he doesn't hold back the gore either. Right. I, yeah. I, I, that was the when I first saw this movie, I was surprised and impressed that he didn't cheap out when it came to the gore. Like this is this is a nicely R-rated horror movie, um, but there there are so many interesting things. So the monster stuff is fun, and I like seeing how they. But it's fun to me as how they deal with it, how the groups deal with it, how the different people deal with it. Yes. And there's all sorts of little character interactions that I think are the real meat of this movie. Yes. And make the like they make the ending really ring like okay for instance somebody explained to me why is the the uh lawyer neighbor why is his character in this story because he he ends up dying pretty much halfway through i think he's not he's not there at the end there's no like resolution with this guy and yet it, he's so important yeah, in the right. beginning. so why is he there was it the into um like to get the like divisiveness like inserted in there like well we're going out i'm taking we're like I'm a smart guy, I'm a lawyer, big city lawyer, uh, kind of thing. Like, like to have some, um, 
uh, divisiveness about about handling the situation. Like, you guys can stay here. We're going out. Like, to introduce that, I wonder. I don't know. Uh, you know, you know, it's funny because he is African-American and there is about a minute within the film when they start start arguing him and his, his, and his pals are going to walk out of the store. And he sort of mentioned mentioned something which is about race, but the movie really never tackles the idea of like race. He says something right. like on the line of uh, me and my people, we're going to leave. And then Laurie Holden's character, Amanda, responds, what do you mean your people? It's just people. But they never really go anywhere with it. So I'm not entirely sure, Patrick. <laughs> like, like yeah, it's I, and weird because if... he gets he, – we don't even know if he dies, but we do know that he – I don't know, know if that, he... that was a racial thing. Like, I, I, I don't know, but that that's... was just like my my followers, right? Like, the, and she yeah, she was yeah. saying, "What do you mean, your people? Like, we're not splitting off into factions. We're all one group." But right. I think it kind of yeah. implied, "Hey, these are my, this is my group, and we're going this way." But and... but the weird thing is, watching it again, I kind of feel like everyone who walked out of the store, and I could be wrong, but everyone who walked out of the store was black. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> now I really want to know. I don't think so, but. <laughs> I could be wrong about that, <laughs> but yeah, it's an odd bit of detail because they focus. They spend so much time developing that relationship with them, seeing each other next door, and oh, your tree and, fell on my boathouse, and and, and I'm gonna give you a ride in this town. They, yeah, they, they make, like make off a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you think that this is gonna be an important relationship throughout the movie, yeah. and then boom, it's gone. <laughs> but, but the thing is, but the thing is, they they keep saying out of towners, and I'm like, but every time they say out of towners, they point to someone who's black. So I could be wrong. Like, I'm oh, not... that motorcycle guy—they call him an outer towner at one point. He's a—he's a big white guy. Um, no, because he grew of... up. In, Brian Libby's character grew up in the town because he's the one who says that he was completely familiar with the fact that Marsha Gay Harden's character was off the rocker. Remember? Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah you're right. Anyhow, but, um, but whoever his casting agent is, him and his casting agent did a fantastic job in picking the actors. Like, they specifically went after Toby Jones, for example. They specifically went after Marsha Gay Harden. It's not like when you watch a horror film and like Friday the Thirteenth or Nightmare on Elm Street, and it's a bunch of like white, good-looking teenage jocks and cheerleaders. You know what I mean? Like, it is refreshing to see a horror movie with adults. That is for sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was just gonna say, like, even someone like Toby Jones, like his character Ollie, like he's the 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 character in the movie. Like he's the smallest guy. He looks like he's the weakest out of the bunch. No offense mm-hmm. to Toby Jones, but he's also the one who can fire a gun. Like little little decisions like that, I think it's in- incredibly refreshing when watching horror films. Yeah, it makes everybody every character seem competent in their own way. And like even Marsha Gay Harden's character is competent in her own way. She knows how to manipulate a situation, and she has deeply held beliefs, convictions that are very strong. <laughs> um, there are, there are a couple other weird things that I picked up on watching this. Do you guys let me know if you noticed this as well, too? But is, is this a movie somewhat about parenting? Because, like, is this guy struggling? And maybe, Dan, you could fill us in on, on, on the book if you remember this at all. But is he struggling with being a father? Because at every chance he gets during this movie, he leaves his kid behind. Oh, he's funny. constantly yeah. leaving his kid and his kid is constantly saying no stay with me and he's constantly like nah i gotta go and then you like pass it off to one of the ladies yes there. yes that's right and, it, that's and right. his wife's not there and it's like i don't want to be a single dad <laughs> and in the end he kills the kid <laughs> you know I, I, never, is funny. I never thought of that like i do no. i do know that they have the school teacher who takes care of the little boy for about i don't know like about 30 minutes of the, the film's running time and then later she commits suicide but the weird thing is I always felt it was odd for them to sort of not 
or I, I guess I guess they did make the change because it's never actually said that uh, that uh, his character is having an affair with Amanda, but it feels like he just doesn't care about the wife till the very end when they drive back home to see if she's still alive, and we get an emotional reaction, but he never thinks to even maybe call or call home or go back home to save her, and I thought it was really odd for them to uh, to take her out of the out of the uh, the picture, right? Like she's there for the first scene. We never see her again. They are married. It's her son. And they spend the entire time in the pharmacy knowing that the entire town is possibly under attack by these giant alien creatures. And they never try to somehow save the mom or think about her or mention her. I don't even think the little boy mentions his mom. I think they do once. That's it. Just once. And it's near the beginning. Now, was there any like... Obviously, there were marital problems in the book, or he would have been having the affair. But was there anything about the kid too? I don't remember anything like like that stands out like that. It and and I, actually, I think the the book was pretty much like that. Like the story was like, oh, let's let, let's get home, let's get back, and you know. Uh, but there, yeah, there wasn't any um, like I don't recall like any infidelity or like alcohol, like nothing like the Shining type issues or anything. You know, one thing that we should do is we should basically reveal what the ending of the book was and what the ending of the movie was. And of course, spoilers, obviously, these are all spoiler casts. Um, yes, yeah, so the ending of the movie, obviously, they get out of there uh, because they think they're, they're, they're crazy people are turning on them. <laughs> so, and they feel like they're going to get killed anyway if they stay in the grocery stores. So they take their chances outside and they drive along and they drive and drive and drive and drive forever. And all they ever see are monsters. Uh, giant ones, kind of beautiful actually, and they're you know just yeah. giant. Lovecraft. Yeah, Patrick, the real yeah, monsters lump- are in the pharmacy. Come on. Lump- yes, oh, yeah. exactly. Well, of course, that's definitely. Uh, well, actually, no. Those other those monsters kill a lot of people. So, um, this is kind of like twenty days later situation where you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um, yeah. So they basically there's no hope. They they just keep driving on. The mist never ends. The monsters are all out there. They run out of gas, I believe, and yeah. and so. They have the gun, and they have so many bullets, and so they, the Thomas Jane's character shoots everybody in the car, <laughs> and he doesn't have, and he doesn't have enough bullets, including his son, his like ten-year-old son, and he doesn't have enough bullets to do himself in. So he's just got to like, be, he's got to be there, and and sure enough, five minutes later, uh, the mist clears, and military trucks roll, roll by, uh, you know, with all sorts of refugees and people, you know, that they've rescued, and had he just waited a little bit, he would have been saved oh the irony <laughs> that's the movie well because mrs Cromati, she says that they need to sacrifice his son billy in order oh, to right. get rid of the creatures that's true. and at that's the true. end of the film he murders his son because i'm sorry there's no way the kid sort of like woke up and was like yeah sure dad shoot me in the head let's all commit suicide that's the difference between the book and the movie because in the movie it's left ambiguous. Like they just kind of like keep driving to Hartford. And no, in yeah, the book. They, they in the book. book. In the radio, yeah. Like... yeah. So yeah, that's what I wanted to say. So the ending of the book is I have no idea what it is. I didn't look it up. I, it, I wanted you guys to explain it to me. If you... They're driving like like it ends. They're driving with a handful of them in the car, and he's like trying to tune into the radio, like to find something, and he hears something that says Hartford and static or something, and then hope. Like some kind of ambiguous, like uh, garbled transmission about Hart- oh, okay. maybe Hart- Hartford, Connecticut. Or- exactly. So they decide to drive to Hartford, and I think the last 
word That's... written in the book is hope. Yeah, right. Where yeah. they'll find the soldiers from 20 days later. And... Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe. We <laughs> promised them women. We promised them women. Yes, exactly. Uh, and more horrific stuff will ensue. Right, um, and, and the weird thing is, I don't know if you guys saw it on the big screen, but I'm not entirely sure if people were no. so upset because they were fans of the original story and fans of Stephen King, sorry, fans of Stephen King, that Frank Darabont decided to change the ending, or people were just really upset because it's such, uh, it's such a depressing ending. Like it's honestly it's the ballsiest. Downer. It is the ballsiest ending of any Hollywood production I've ever seen. It's a real downer for sure. Uh, I can't imagine any studio executives would have liked that <laughs> at all. But it well, is and he was adamant. A, he was adamant on keeping that ending. I think right. Like he's like, yeah. we're doing this, the mist, and I'm not changing the ending. Uh, by the way. Yeah, and Stephen King has approved of the ending. I think he said he, he even said it was better than his own ending. Um, yeah, that he wished he wished he had thought of it. Right. It is. It is kind of a soft ending. Like the the books, the novels. It's just kind of a all right. You know, okay, they're driving on, you know. Well, um, but the novel yeah. connects with the Dark Tower, which is why we have the whole entire explanation of the military and the experiment, and they open up a portal from a different dimension, which let the monsters in. Dark Tower reference or, or connection? The I mist think. totally connects to the Dark Tower, for sure. But the problem with okay. the movie is when they started explaining why the the aliens came into our world, like, I feel like it wasn't needed in the movie because, like, there's no reason to connect this to the Dark Tower because they had no intention on making a Dark Tower. They weren't trying to make some sort of, like, Stephen King cinematic universe. And I kind of felt right. like that was one of the things they should have left out because when you when you bring it into the movie, it's like all of a sudden what you're talking about, the military and experiments and different dimensions. It's like I thought this was just a monster movie. Uh, the right, only thing yeah. I can think of is that they needed a reason for the people to kill the military guy, and so you needed to hear that something weird was going on at the military base, that they were performing experiments that were unnatural or against, like, uh, God, I guess, uh, th so that they could turn on him. And his stabbing is really when things get real inside the grocery store, because up until that point— Yes, people are going a little weird and factions are forming, but it hasn't turned explicitly dangerous where people are actually killing each other. This is the first time that people actually that you see them murder each other uh, when the military guy is stabbed. So I think that I think they left it in just for that. And they kept it pretty quick. They didn't dwell on the military stuff uh, too much, which was a good thing. You didn't need to. I like the mystery of it all. I, and I, I think in the book, I think those guys dispatched themselves fairly quickly from what I remember. I think yeah. they discovered them in the back room. Like, uh oh, and like, that just means, oh, man, they, they were they know something that we all don't know. Or, or, and, and in the movie, they hang themselves. They find themselves. They find them back there. Yes, the other and guys. I think I don't think that military. Yes, and in the, I don't think they're hanging out there, uh, that long in in the book. No, okay. but but I think that if you just showed them commit suicide, like they hung, they they hang themselves. I think that right. would imply that they know something that we don't know, and they are partly responsible, perhaps for yes. the monsters. Yeah, I mean, the, the military guys are strange because you feel like, again, they should be a bigger part of the story. There's a lot of stuff here, and I love and, this. And why aren't they at the PX? What are they doing at the local? Right, store? exactly. <laughs> and the, that guy's relationship with the checkout girl is... Yeah, yeah. You, you, again, you feel like that's going somewhere, and nope, it's not. Like, she she gets killed in a pretty gruesome way fairly soon. Um, there's, there's just not really much there. There's so many dead ends, and I kind of feel like 
that that to me is what makes this group seem more real because everybody's story is doesn't have a perfect arc uh it's kind of stop and go you know very stuttering just like in real life um things just happen yeah. and i kind of like that about this movie that things just happen it doesn't feel like it's hitting all the character beats only a few of the characters actually have any sort of arc i guess and that arc isn't necessarily a satisfying one like william sadler's character it's not like he learns any lessons is he goes from being an idiot who's being made he goes from being a cocky asshole to being an idiot who's made fun of to being a zealot that's kind of <laughs> that's murderous capable of murder <laughs> hey you want to hear something crazy you might know this but when they are in the pharmacy not sorry not the pharmacy the supermarket the grocery store the whole entire um, window, like the, it, it's a backdrop. So, like the actual supermarket is on a sta- on a on a soundstage. So uh-huh. it like so like they basically took a snapshot of of the inside of the real supermarket looking out, and they superimposed uh-huh. that and blew it up. So they had the big backdrop, so it looked like you can actually see the outside, but there's no outside. You're inside a soundstage. I think it's crazy because like I didn't That's know cool. that. Yeah, I had so, no idea. I yeah, assumed it was a real one. So what they did was they I, showed up on yeah. the real location. They filmed like two or three shots of people walking in and out of the store, and that's it. They just cut those two or three shots of people walking in and out of the real location with the soundstage, and it gave the illusion that that was actually – like what you're seeing outside of the store is actually what it is, but it's not. It's just a painting or a giant picture. Oh, clever. That is clever. an abs- – that's the best effect that they have in the movie. Well, and it's – the whole, I mean, speaking of the grocery store itself, it's just as a setting and, and for staging purposes, it's all so great because you have the aisles, you have these familiar rows and aisles, and they, you can compose these shots where, you know, with the diagonals and the rows of food, and we know ge- geographically where we are in this place. Like, all right, the windows up front, that's the front, the uh, the service area in the back with the, um, you know, the plastic screens that you walk through the rubbery plastic screens to the back of the service delivery area like we and maybe we already know this because we've always we've we've, we've been to so many grocery stores so it's like it's this great familiar location to set set things and stage action yeah but that's the thing like when people speak of the special effects they just think of the creatures but the entire film is sort of like a special effect because the pharmacy for example does not exist the um you know you know the the last scene when they're driving that is also shot on a soundstage so all they did was they put this big huge white backdrop filled it with a bunch of mist and then everything was added in post-production via cgi so even the trucks and helicopters none of that is actually there it it just comes from post-production uh even william sather he's not real yeah he's he's, he's, (laughs) He was created in post production. One uh, good piece of trivia coming from an Internet Movie Database page, which I just pulled up. The gun that they use can only shoot six bullets at a time, and she has two rounds of ammunition, if that's the proper terminology, and they actually do fire exactly 12 bullets in the movie. Finally a movie that keeps track of that sort of thing. Yeah, wow, yeah. (laughs) Take that, John Wayne. <laughs> All right. Um, with that, we should probably take a, a quick break, and we'll come back. We'll ask our five questions about the mist. Here's another clip. Stealing food now? Oh, 
Going out now, Mrs. Carmody. Please stand aside. You can't go out. I won't allow it. Won't allow it? It's against God's will. Don't you know that by now? Haven't I proven myself again and again and again? Haven't I shown that I am his vessel? What's the matter with you? Don't you believe in God? No one's interfered with you. All we're asking for is the same privilege. You heard him. It is these people who brought this upon us. They, people who refuse to bend to the will of God and claim it privilege. Sinners in pride. Yes, haughty, privileged. They mock us, they mock our, our God, our faith, our values, our very lifestyle. They mock our humility and our piousness. They piss on us and laugh. It's from them. The blood of human sacrifice must come from them. The blood of expiation. You try it. Fucking try it! Come on! We want the boy. You we get want back. the boy! No, you, get back. you get back! Come on, get out! Okay, that was another clip from Frank Darabont's The Mist. Uh, so we're going to ask our five questions. We're at that portion of the podcast. And, of course, we always like to start things off with something more positive. So we'll go around the horn here. Uh, Dan, what's your favorite scene from The Mist? Um, let's see. I guess maybe just that sense of uncertainty. I don't even know if uncertainty is a theme of this. but oh, like... scene. Scene. Sorry. Scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Scene. Scene. No, um... not theme. Not theme, but scene. S-C-E-N-E. Oh, God. Sorry. Sorry. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> all right. Scene. Scene. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Right. My, maybe, maybe my favorite theme is um, the sense of uncertainty, like, uh even like you know you have you have the mist creeping into the parking lot and that that guy uh, dan miller comes running in and and some people some people are still leaving it's kind of cool that some people are still like are going out to their cars and you might hear a scream you might not or maybe they made it to their car like and just in that little moment where it's where it's creeping into the um the parking lot is a cool like scene and then they're enveloped and then it's like all bets are off but I like I like that kind of uh, sense of impending uncertainty as far as a, a theme, and maybe that dovetails nicely into my favorite scene of actually him, that guy um, Dan Miller, who's the character. But like he's in The Walking Dead and um, The Green Mile. He's one of the guards in The Green Mile. I don't know his. I can't come up with his name right now. But the fact that he comes in like yelling, "Somebody took John Lee," I, and I heard him screaming. Like that's his. Not something tried to attack me, or not something I saw something, but 
the, that uh, sense of um, somebody, something took attacked someone else that you all implied, you all know. Well, you everyone here knows John Lee, and he got taken. And like, how that's kind of creepy. That's kind of scary. Like that, not not I was attacked by a monster out there. Uh, who's gonna believe him? But no, somebody attacked John Lee and took him. Are you talking about Jeffrey Demun? Is that his name? Maybe the old the old man. Yeah, the old man. Like he would call him, "Hey, T Dog," or what do you think? His you know? his <laughs> name is Dan. His character's name is Dan Miller. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah that I, guy. He, he only has a couple of uh, lines, I think. Uh, yeah, and he I si- thought that's sides like, with I thought the that same was a cool. Pardon, pardon. He sides with the, with Thomas Jane and the the yes. same people. Yeah. But I I like that as a setup. Like, oh, there's something out there, and it got someone that you, every one of us here knows. That mm-hmm. we don't we haven't met uh, we haven't met John Lee. We don't know, but we it's it's, it's a nice uh, I don't know like immersion moment. I I thought. It creates this. It's a super efficient way, by the way, of creating this small town community, of letting everybody know that this is a yes. small town community. And John Lee won't be making an appearance. <laughs> no, he won't. <laughs> uh, all right. So, Rick, what is your favorite scene? Oh boy, there's so many, so many I love. Okay, so my see, Patrick, I want to know what you're going to choose because I have so many to choose from. You want me to go first? Yeah, please. Okay, uh, this might seem like a fairly... Though there's lots of good scenes in this. This may seem like a fairly obvious one, but I do like when they go back to restart the generator and shit gets real. You know, when the tentacle comes in and, and takes the, uh-huh. the grocery bagger. Yeah, I, I like that scene quite a bit because it involves... I think there are, like, there's character arcs within that scene, little mini arcs. Uh, that that's whole scene from beginning to end is a little bit of a story, and at that point, the lawyer is still around, too. So they have that little bit of disbelief, um, like why you would make that up. I have no idea. <laughs> but, yes, yeah. You, you know, and, and 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 manage to convince all these other guys to very, very convincingly uh, back your story up. But uh, yeah, I love that scene from beginning <laughs> to end. Just the sort of when he first walks into the generator room by himself, sort of figures out that that it's you know backed up. Then the bangs on the door. And he goes back, like just the sort of the beats of going back and forth and back and forth um, until even until the the little goo is all that remains. I think that could have been a little short film almost. Um, so yeah, I, that's my favorite scene. It also kind of encapsulates the group dynamics, like right right there, just between those those four people or five people. Like it sort of takes everything that's in the larger setting and distill boils it down to just those people right there. Okay, I'm going to tell you what my favorite shot is. My favorite camera shot is when they carry Sam Witwer's character, Private Jessup. So he's the guy in the military who has a crush on the cashier. Towards the end of the film, they want to sacrifice him, so he gets stabbed three or four times. They lift him up, and you have this beautiful camera shot, which is a bird's-eye view of him as they carry him out, out, like they carry him outside of the store. So that is my favorite camera shot. It's my second favorite scene. And I think my favorite scene, if I had to pick, is the pharmacy scene. When they raid the pharmacy. Because first of all, Irene, poor little Irene, takes a flamethrower. And <laughs> and she just starts kicking butt, right? And I love that actress, Frances Sternhagen. She's amazing. But it also builds that suspense. It sort of lets us and the characters in the movie in on the fact that the military is somewhat responsible for the chaos 
and it's a scene that I think was kind of like maybe not needed, but sort of like refreshing to sort of get them out of the far, um, out of the supermarket, even if it was only for a good like ten or fifteen minutes. It's that that change of location was sort of like very welcome. Even though mm-hmm. I am a big fan of horror films that all take place on one single location, I think in this case it worked great. But man, Patrick, there's so many good scenes. Like I love the scene when um when what's his face um oh my god what's his what's his character what's the guy's name again um i i barely remember any of the character names well but, David but, uh, brian Lib- i don't even know if he has a name but brian libby plays the biker the big huge well biker dude when that guy leaves the pharmacy and they tie a rope around his waist and he comes yes. back but only half of his body comes back like brent norton is that's that his, his character name yes oh, okay. no 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 brent, brent norton is the uh the guy that andre brower plays Oh, okay. I thought tying tying the uh, rope around the waist. I thought that was Brent. Okay. No, they tied the rope. They asked. They wanted to tie it around his waist, but he sort of like refused, and they ended up tying the rope around the waist of ah, Libby's right. character, the biker. Right, right. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I there, that that's a great scene as well. There are really a lot of good ones. I mean, even when the little bug things attack, and then the bigger thing, the pterodactyl type things attack. Uh, when they actually get inside and the chaos is let loose. And I love when that guy sets himself on fire because that totally would happen in a scenario yes. like that where yeah. none of these people are trained to fight anything ever. Well, and, and that there's this weird, like, um, uh, circle, not circle of life, but like this weird pecking order as far as, oh, the larger ones eat the smaller ones. Like this kind of um, oh, this, right. food ch- this food chain in this weird universe that's been unleashed on us. Which is a cool thing that that's why going to the pharmacy, I think, is also a cool scene. It's, it, it has shades of aliens, obviously, with the, you know, the please kill me and stuff inside, uh, you yes. know, the, 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 the spiders bursting out of the guy or coming, not even bursting, but coming out of them. Um, yeah, I, I, I love that whole thing. It sort of it fleshes out just how many different monsters have actually come across and makes the world seem a lot more dangerous out there. And there was right. a nice uh, callback to John Carpenter's The Thing. And also, we didn't even mention at the start of the movie, there is a beautiful homage to the very famous poster artist, Drew uh, Struzman. Yeah, right. uh, obviously The Thing poster is, there, is fantastic. I was like, wondering... Is he supposed to be Drew? Like, that's what I was thinking of, like when I saw it. I'm like, oh, is this Drew Struzman? <laughs> or is this... Oh no! It's a guy who's like he's like him. <laughs> he, he used his real life studio, and they took. It wasn't the original print, original poster that he drew that you see in the scene, but they're duplicates. So, and then he asked him to do the poster that the character David is working on in the film, which is clearly a uh-huh. nod to Dark Tower, right? Yeah, so I that's going to say it's like obviously. Clint Eastwood too. It's because uh, Stephen King always imagined uh, Clint Eastwood as the. Uh, as the, Roland, I guess. The gunfighter. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very, I always wondered if that made any difference. Like, wh- why is he uh, an artist that never comes into play? And again, it's another one of those, it's, like, I think fan service threads. kind of thing, yeah, right? It like, means nothing. Like, that yeah. he's an artist, yet they, they spend a little bit of time in the beginning on it. Like, oh, your painting was destroyed. Oh, no, I have to do another one. I'm going to have to call him to New York. They're going to have to give me a deadline. And it, it just seems like one of those things that, <laughs> it didn't really matter at all that he was that he was a movie artist, and it's not like they ever talk about movies or anything. Ever Frank Darabont was making this for a specific crowd, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a detail I like. I kind of like that about it. Which yeah. you know, and Dan, we've talked about this before. One of the best things about the thing is all the dead ends in that movie. Yes, yeah. 
where you don't eat out of cans. And, yeah, yeah, everything doesn't pay off, and that can be a good thing sometimes. All right, so now on to something a little that could be potentially a little even more interesting is, uh, Dan, if there's one thing about the mist you could change, what would it be? Well, let's see. You know, I was thinking maybe the special effects, but like we were saying, there's a there's a, a kind of a charm to their, um, you know, this was made in, in a, a, a low budget and in a short time, and it was, and he got he got everyone he could he got uh, all of his like favorites to come in and chime in and make this thing. So there's a there's a charm to like the uh, the uh, shoot from the hip aspect of it, but I. I would kind of say, oh, it'd be cool if the if the effects were better, but it's not a deal breaker. There, there's like, like I said, a, a charm to the, uh, I don't know, the the, uh, the the rough edges, I guess, to this mm -hmm. whole thing. So, what would you change? Are you going well, with the effects, but not really? <laughs> uh, I guess, I, I guess, I was like that. I don't know. You know, the I'm thinking about that ending, the ending, uh, but I, I don't know what I would do with that, like. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I might, I might go with the special effects. I might say it would be nice because it, it did, it did bump me a little bit, and it would, it would be nice to have those a little, a little okay. bit more. If, if this were, you know, if you were going for like the, like a big feature, not like the B movie kind of thing. Yeah, I think, like I say, I mean, I think the effects work because they are kind of quaint, and it does harken back to those B movies, and I kind of like that. There, there is that charm to it. It's like watching the old Star Wars stuff too. Like those, sure. some of the effects, they were state of the art at the time, but they do look a little cheesy now. But they still fit the kind of the serial theme of yes. you know, or what, yes. what Star Wars is going for, and I think these fit the kind of the B movie uh, thing. Like this will always be. Well, we'll get to that later. But all right, so I. I there are two things here. They're very small, and they would be easily changeable. Um, and I think they would make they wouldn't make a huge difference because I already really like this movie. But they would make my watching of it just a little more enjoyable. And I was going back and forth between it. Between now, I, I always tend to hate kid actors. Don't ever like them. This kid's no different. I think he's terrible in this movie. Uh, I think he. I think they hired a kid that was too old to play somebody much younger. So it, I don't buy it. Like I, the kid, I don't think is supposed to be ten. I think he's supposed to be uh, more like six, but he looks like he's ten, and he's saying things that a six-year-old would say, and I don't believe it for a second. Like he's just <laughs> he's too old for that. I have nieces that are eight and nine, and believe me, they don't <laughs> act like this kid. <laughs> uh, the the words that are coming out of his mouth just seem like they're for a five a five or six-year-old, somebody much younger. Um. So I don't buy that, like the casting, I think was wrong there. But I also, I debated the music, the the composer. I don't care for uh, it. So the only, my only problem with the ending, I actually love it. I think it's a great, a great downer and it hits you. It's like a punch in the gut, but I don't like the music. <laughs> so uh, I, I might've gotten a different, different composer. I'm trying, I don't know. I think the kid would probably increase my enjoyment. Again, these are very small nits, by the way. Sure, and sure. I think if I had to go with one, I guess I'd replace the kid because honestly, the music only really bothers me at the end. It distracts me from it. I don't like it. Um, it sounds like it should be in Gladiator. I can't remember who the composer. Oh, that was uh, oh my god, that was Hans Zimmer who did Gladiator. Zimmer, That's what yeah. it, it sounds like a Hans Zimmer score at the end of The Mist, which does not fit at all. To me. Oh yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I'll go with the kid though. Uh, Rick, what about you? What would you change? Well, first of all, I agree. The kid is not good. Nathan Gamble? Sorry, dude. Like, you're not a good child actor. <laughs> nope. 
<sighs> I think I think it's also, but the thing is, I don't know if I blame him so much. I think he's miscast, and I think it also has a lot to do with the direction he's getting from the director. Right? He is a kid, and maybe that is why um, David didn't want to spend much time with Billy because Billy is just terrible. As for the music. <laughs> <clears throat> I actually really like the song from Dead Can't Dance towards the end of the film, which is a uh, bit overwhelming, but I do think it's a bit much, and I think it's trying really hard, as is the ending, to to make you feel like crap. We've talked about this so many times on the podcast. You get uh, more of um, an emotional reaction towards sound as opposed to an image, right? So if you watch the ending, you, you, you press mute. It's not going to have the same impact as when you watch it with the music, and sound specifically that song and specifically listening to thomas jane cry <laughs> because holy cow um yeah it's pretty intense right what i would mm-hmm. change patrick is the ending because the whole idea of having five people just agree on committing suicide towards the end of the film when they just spent the last i don't know six hours of or actually more maybe the last day of their life trying to survive it just didn't make sense like if they're the type of people that would have committed suicide they would have committed suicide way back at the at the supermarket like the teacher like the two dudes from the military and also like it's not like they were surrounded by a bunch of aliens that were about ready to rip them apart (laughs) right like yeah, right. the car ran of ran out of gas, but they could have still maybe waited for someone to save them, maybe walk a bit further, maybe they would find a cabin or a hospital. Who knows, right? So I like the idea. I like the idea of having four bullets, five people, one of them has to stay alive. I like the idea of having a, a very bleak ending, like I said, one of the ballsiest endings of any Hollywood per film production I've ever seen. I just don't like the execution. And I'm not entirely sure how to fix it with a gun. And that's the, the thing. I've said this a million times in the past. And I always bring up Scream as a comparison point. Scream would be a better movie if you removed the gun. Most people in the, in the first Scream die because of a gunshot. And most slasher films don't involve guns. But it's a parody slash like a movie is paying homage to slasher films. And yet they use a gun throughout the entire film. Scream 2 is a better film in my opinion because they don't actually rely on guns. They actually rely on uh, finding more clever ways for the killer, Ghostface, to actually kill his victims. Anyhow, in this film, I think if you remove the gun and find a different way for these five people to decide to commit suicide, like maybe poison or sleeping pills, I don't know. It might seem a little bit more realistic. And I think that's the thing. Like when I watched the movie for the first time on the big, big screen, I think a lot of people were upset because they just didn't buy it. They didn't buy into the fact that these five people would just all agree to kill themselves and that this man would fire the gun. And also, he's killing, like, sorry, the son didn't, didn't agree to suicide. He's murdering his son. <laughs> so murdered, it, yeah. it, it, betrays, and, it betrays all five characters. And, I, again, I think this goes to my, like, he doesn't want to be a dad theme. He kills his kid, and then he watches the other woman, like, drive past with her kids, right? Like, she didn't kill her kids. But I think he was, like, yeah, I think he almost looks slightly relieved <laughs> that he's not her. <laughs> If, that, if, that, if that's the theme of the movie, then it succeeds. But I don't think that's what the movie is about, though. I don't know. There's something in there with parenthood. Uh, here's the thing. I like, that... I, I, it seems to me that it's implied that they drove for a long time. Yeah, they ran out of gas. Right. Yeah. So I think they're basically the thing. Like, we drove for hours. You know, they, 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 they bled their tank. And I'm going to assume that they were at least half full, right? Like, most people at least usually have a half tank of gas. Well, and they, half they, empty in this movie. 
Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. Because I think it is about they were the ones who originally had hope that they could survive this thing. And now they've been completely worn out by the, the all the threats from inside the grocery store and outside. They've driven forever. There seems to be no end to the mist in sight. Now they're out of gas. Do they want to? I think one of the people is wounded in the back, too. But, 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 um, but put yourself in that situation like you are standing outside looking in. Like, just think of, like, how awkward it would be for him to reach over and shoot his son, who's, like, a foot away in the head, have to, like, point his gun upward, shoot her, then shoot them in the back. Like, the whole thing, it just seemed so unnatural. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> he was never going to be able to kill himself. But, but, uh, but yeah, he could shoot everybody in that car, and then he'd have to live with the consequences. I think that was the pact that they essentially made. Um, you know? Oh, the, the the thing is, I hate when anybody shoots any gun in a car, and then they can still hear afterwards because that would never happen. What, what if they never showed the shot? Like, kind of like in No Country for Old Men, when Shigeru walks out of the house and checks his boots. Like, oh wait, he just, oh he just killed her. Like, like, like what if what if it was like handled in a different way? I don't know. Like, I I think that I think you're right. That well, No Country for Old Men definitely. They're going for something different there. They weren't yeah, trying to true. gut punch that's you true. there. Yeah. Whereas this one, they clearly, Darebot wants to hit you. Uh, hit, hit it home. Hit home. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I think if there was a quieter ending to it, I think people would have been more confused. I think they Maybe, needed the yeah, shock. Yeah. The yeah, shock. Probably, probably, I, yeah. I still I think if I were to change it, I would write in a scene where they say their goodbyes and somehow drink or eat something that's poisonous and... Except for him. Well, but then, see, that's the thing. Like, Frank Darabont wanted him yeah. specifically to survive. Like, Yes. They, like, the thing is, is that they wrote this into the movie and changed the original script just so they can have that twist ending. But to me, when, when you have to force a twist ending, that, to me, isn't necessarily good writing. Yeah, I don't know. Again, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i disagree with you on this one because I, li- I do like the ending. Uh, I think other than the music, but I think it works. Re- I think it works really well. And, and it, like a true twist ending to me, it makes every rewatching a little bit different because I know what's in store for them. And a good twist ending should change the rest of the movie for you. And it does for me. So it becomes a little more tragic when I see them actually trying, you know, when I'm rewatching the movie now and knowing that they are going to lose all of that and they're just going to give up. So, and, yeah, and I like it. What if Bill Sadler was the new Mrs. Carmody on the truck coming coming out? Like he's got a whole co- new congregation and he's yeah. driving by. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. Uh, speaking of Bill Sadler, who is Dan? Who is the MVP of the Mist? You know what? I you know I've been talking about Bill Sadler all all this time, but I actually think it's the guy who plays Ollie. I think he's like the real like foundation, the, the real uh, character who grounds you in this world. And he's trying to keep he's trying to keep everything together. He's trying to do the right thing. Um, it's Toby he, Hooper, right? Or I mean, uh, Toby Jones. Toby I mean, not Jones. Toby Hooper. Toby <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Texas Chainsaw, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I think I think he does such a good job at, at like kind of a the uh, everyman uh, like linchpin of 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 this of this story um, and. You know, it all takes place in the grocery store. He's like he exudes grocery store manager like through and through. Um, and then he has this he has this weird talent of or not weird, but like a this uh, un, uncovered talent of being a sharpshooter, too, which is kind of funny. 
Um, so he gets a nice, lot of nice moments and uh, kind of, uh, I think, grounds us in this little world. He's the least theatrical of the of the yes. growth store characters. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. Which is a good There's thing. You needed that. Stuff. There's some pretty yeah. broad stuff. <laughs> which is fine because, you know, you're trying to portray a, a small town. I wouldn't say argue that any of them are stereotypes per se, which is a good thing. They're just they are kind of broad in, in some ways. Um, but I, I, I'm not one of those people who thinks that this movie's overacted. I actually think it's done extremely well. It's just that you're right, though. Toby Jones kind of holds the room together. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's the rug that holds the room together. Yes, yeah, ties it all together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, my MVP. Well, obviously, I I always go. It's it's difficult to this one. I might actually pick an actor too, but I I think this movie's unwatchable if Thomas Jane doesn't get it right. Mm. Um, so I have to go with Thomas Jane on this because Darabont does a great job directing and writing, but again, this is mostly King, right? So it's a pretty faithful adaptation from what you guys say. So I'm going to give more credit to King when it comes to the writing of this. And as far as the direction goes, I think, a, you know, he did a good job, but I also think that the guys from the wire, Rick, that you brought up, the cinematographers, they have a lot to do with that as well. They capture yeah, or the shield. I mean, yeah, shield, they capture yeah. those moments, right? They know where to stand, where to put the camera, probably even better than he did for certain things. Like, they understood how how what they were doing. Um, obviously, Darabont's, you know, big. He's the main force behind this. But I don't think the movie works if Thomas Jane doesn't pull off the, the gravity of the main character. So I was going to pick Tom Jane, who I love. And I really think he should have been the main star of The Walking Dead. Um, the Punisher is fantastic in this movie. But since you picked Tom Jane... And since Dan picked Toby Jones, who I also love, who did a fantastic job playing Truman Capote in the movie Infamous. If you haven't seen it, watch that movie as well. But I'm going to pick someone we haven't talked about yet. I'm going to pick Greg Nicotero. And the reason why is because we talked about cafe effects and the digital effects, the CGI, and how sometimes it was a little bit too much and cheesy. But Greg Nicotero is a guy who came in and mixed the CGI with the practical effects, the old school effects. And if not for him, this entire movie would just be CGI recreations of gore and blood and guts. And I don't think that would work. For example, the pharmacy scene. We needed mm -hmm. someone like him in there to have the body hit the floor and have all of the spiders come out of the body. Yeah. Stuff like that. So I'm actually going to pick Greg Nicotero. And if you do not know who he is, he's one of the greatest uh, special effects wizards in motion picture. And he's ah. the man responsible for 99.9% .9 of the effects in The Walking Dead. And in fact, he's directed a lot of the Walking Dead episodes. Ah, okay. Did not know that. He also, I mean, the design of the, the, the monsters is fantastic. Even if I think sometimes the effects don't blend perfectly well, the CGI, I mean... The design of them is so good that it doesn't really matter. Um, like that, so there's so many cool-looking creatures in this. I could see that. Uh, the effects. I mean, just hearing that, just hearing that the the whole place was actually the grocery store was in a studio. That alone, I feel like I've seen this movie so many times, and I've never never read that, so yeah. I never had any idea, and that blows my mind because yeah, it great. looks real. Right, great set decoration, right? I mean, like the potato chips and <laughs> yeah, and and just soda. And, yeah, amazing job of making that look like it was actually there was an outside out there. Uh, right. That's an amazing job right off the bat. And the, the grocery store is such a character that yeah, that without that, without that feeling, um, 
the movie doesn't work either. So I can totally get that. Uh, all right. So the Howard Hawks test, which is uh, a great movie, is comprised of three great scenes and no bad ones. Mm. Dan, does this does the mist pass the test? Okay, I'm trying to think if I'm, there's a lot of good scenes. I'm trying to think if there's anyone that jars me as like a bad one. There's nothing that resonates as like, I mean, I know that the ending is polarizing, but it it the ending is doing something kind of uh, like we we're saying, like like if you don't uh, appreciate the execution, you like the idea of it. Um, I I would say there's no for what this movie is doing. There are no bad scenes. Hmm. Okay, I would have to agree with you. I don't. I can't think of a single bad scene. There are mm-hmm. scenes where I can wonder why did they leave that in there, but it's not that I don't like the scene, and I don't think it detracts from the movie either. I don't know of a single scene that detracts from this movie. It's a pretty right. lean, efficient movie for one yeah. thing. This is not bloated in any way, which is great. It's very spare uh, in many ways, and so yeah, like I say, there are scenes where he's talking to the lawyer in the beginning and they, they spend so much time on that relationship that goes nowhere. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know why that's in there, but I like those scenes <laughs> and they sort of, yeah, I guess yeah, they establish, yeah, yeah. they establish him and they sort of, you know, they establish some tension early on, even though that tension will never pay off with that character. So yeah, I'm going to say that it, it, it is lots of great scenes. So yes, I would say it passed the Howard Hawks test. Uh, Rick, what about you? So I think it has five great scenes, but here's my question. Does the bad acting by the, the actor who plays Billy the Kid, does that count as a bad scene, or is that just bad acting within a scene know. that still I, works? I, I can kind of tune that stuff out. Like, I'm, I, I never mind, like, bad, like, oh, he's just a kid. Like, so I, 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 I'm able to get past that and, and look, at, uh, look at it from a higher level, I guess. I don't know. I would argue that, the, or posit this, the kid never really has a scene. He's there, and there are a couple times where he has to act with his dad and act scared or whatever, and I want to go home. And But his dad quickly passes him off to some lady, multiple ladies over the course of the movie. Yes. <laughs> and, He's got a lot uh, of babysitters, isn't it? And the kid's out of the picture. I wouldn't argue that the, the kid is ever a major part of an actual, full, fully fleshed-out scene. He's in there, but... Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. He never, he never gets his moment, right? Well, because he never, the, there never is, the center of anything. I think you're right. I, I was just thinking about the scene where he's sucking on his thumb, and I was thinking back to what you said at the start of the podcast, how he's like, he's like 12 years old or at least 11, but he's playing like a six year old, yeah. and it's like, it didn't make any sense. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to remember if that whole entire scene was about this one kid being afraid and his terrible acting, or if there was more to that scene. But you know what? I'm just going to say, yes, it passes the Howard Hawks test. This movie is fantastic for what it is, which is a sci-fi horror B-movie made in 2007 in six weeks on a shoestring budget, and it's that really, really, cool. really good. Yeah, It's really cool that they got all that together in a short amount of time, and and, you get, and it shows, like, the, like the, the passion, like everyone – Everyone involved in it seemed like, oh, we're really into this and we want to make it uh, 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 come to life. So I think that it's really something special. Yeah, I, I mean, Darabon obviously was kind of at the peak of his you know, cachet. He was uh, the Green yes. Mile, despite my distaste for it, was very successful and at least liked, if not you know, loved, like Shawshank. Yeah. But, but, by, by the way, I, I, I like the ending to this movie. I, like You asked me what I would change, and I think there's a way to make mm-hmm. it better. And the reason why I like it is because of the impact it has on its viewers. 
for for better or for worse because even if someone walks away hating this movie it's something they never forget and it's one of those movies that people love to talk about bring it up in your next dinner conversation Ask yeah have you seen the mist <laughs> it's possible they could have done it better but i don't think it's cheap like certain endings of movies have been like okay i'm <laughs> gonna go out on a limb here's not on a limb but this is sort of off the rails a little bit but saving private ryan to me has a very cheap ending even though i think that movie is great uh, it oh, fakes you out at the beginning, making yes. you think that you're seeing through a certain person's eyes when you're really not. It's uh-huh. lying to you. And that relation to me, I was like, ah, it's filmmaking tricks. That's, that's like that's bad stuff. That was cheap, even though the rest of the movie is absolutely brilliant. That, to me, is cheap. That movie uh, would have been uh, better if you replaced Tom Hanks with Tom Jane. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Ed Burns. Tom Jane could have played the Ed Burns character. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, Mr. Overacting New Yorker. Um <laughs> Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got nothing against Ed Burns. He's he's fine in that movie. And but... by the way, I do like Tom Hanks. I'm just you know he's yeah, it's always yeah. Tom Hanks in one of these movies. Uh, all right. So all of everything being said that we said here today, this is a, sometimes we sort of gloss over this question, but will will the mist stand the test of time, especially with like horror fans? Dan, well, I, what do you think? Or Rick, Rick, you go first. I, I mean, we asked this question week after week, and I'm like, why? We should replace the question. I think, yes. I mean, the movie came out in 2007. It's 2020. It still has an impact. It still feels relevant. I was reading a review, and I'm sorry. I totally forget who wrote the review and the website. I was on the bus reading the review. But anyways, the point is, in the review, the person, the writer, the critic, was complaining that none of the characters felt realistic, and he would never imagine meeting people like this in real life. And he was specifically talking about for example, the character that Marsha Gay Harden plays. And I'm like, those people exist. There are people like that. And yeah, every yeah. one of those people exists. Yeah. That, <laughs> Matt, turn not. on the six o'clock news. Like when you when uh-huh. people are scared, people are scared. Like they 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 don't necessarily react in the best, most rational ways possible. And so yeah, so I, I think it does stand the test of time because I mean, let's face it, we've all been in quarantine and we all know how horrifying it can be, even if we are lucky enough to be able to watch movies and, and you know, play video games and stuff. There's still something un- like uncomfortable about being locked up, right? And in this case, they're not locked up for the entire movie, but the majority of the film, they're locked in a supermarket with a bunch of strangers and a bunch of like creatures outside trying to get in there, trying to kill them. I don't know how I would react. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I really they think, don't, how would I react? They don't have information available to them. They don't understand what's going on out there, so they can't react to it necessarily in a logical way. Some people try to be logical, and, uh, you know, of course you can always – there are definitely characters who are supposed to be seen as the rational ones, and we side with them because those are the decisions we make. But it's very similar to something like Alien, right, where you can see – Several of the decisions when when they've when Kane first gets the the creature attached to him, there they come back and they're demanding to be led on the ship. And then meanwhile, you've got Sigourney Weaver who is right. not willing to allow them to come. In. And because of quarantine, because it could infect the whole ship, you side with her because she's the rational one. But if you think for a second that you might not be one of the other ones demanding to be let in, I, I would I check yourself just for a bit there. It I very easily see the panic from something like yes. that happening but but uh, that's why i also like the fact that we see melissa mcbride's character at the end on the jeep because she does do what seems to be the stupid decision to actually leave the supermarket go out into the right. mist but she has to like it's it's she's the mom and she needs to save her children and so she 
she makes a decision that I probably wouldn't make, and yet at the end of the movie, she survives. Yeah, and it's the emotional. I hope her children are better actors. (laughs) 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 They already were. (laughs) I mean, obviously, that guy had to kill that kid. I mean, it was inevitable. (laughs) You can't let a performance like that keep going. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so I know that we. Here's the thing I'm not sure that the mist will stand the test of time and it's because of attitudes like that i think there are definitely new attitudes when it comes to viewing movies uh, amongst those that are younger than us um and in this particular i know we've brought up a lot of old movies that we think will stand the test of time and i think that that film people will always love certain uh, you know some of these movies and i think guys like john carpenter and the fog they they will live on because they are making it through to the new generation but I'm not sure that the mist will. I think there's hokiness in it I, that that does harken back to late 60s. You know, like I said, the Night of the Living Dead yeah. stuff, which, which for a lot of people has not aged very well at all. I mean, I, I don't think the Night of the Living Dead is going to. Well, we may get into that in another podcast. Whoa, now the 1960 I, original Night of the Living Dead, yeah. like the second greatest horror film ever made. I can see it falling out of favor, you know, out of fashion. I mean, because it's um, in black and white and because of well, some of the acting. And the style, the stylistic choices of the low, it was a low budget movie, of but, course, but, but I, but I can see that happening and I can this, see that happening with this. But too. this is the problem with the question, because look, if I, I'll give you an example. So when I first watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Night of the Living Dead, which, which is the two movies I consider the two greatest horror films ever made, right? My personal opinion. When I first watched both of those movies when I was younger, I didn't like any of those movies. I didn't know anything about filmmaking. I watched them later when I was like in high school and then one of them in college. And I think they're the two of the greatest horror films ever made. So it's, it's, it's like, this is a tricky question to answer because if you were, if we're talking about the general masses, like the general, like the majority of the population, then most people will not like this movie and they're going to tune out. But if you're talking about hardcore movie buffs, film students, filmmakers, I think most of us like in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, will still be able to watch the mist and enjoy it. It's a fun movie. I think, think they'll re-examine it and it won't be considered necessarily a classic. I think that's my point here. I, I Look, the I did I, I liked movies like Night of the Living Dead, even when I was a kid, because it creeped me out. We watched older movies in a different light. Uh, I've tried to explain this, actually, to, to 20-somethings, where, <laughs> <laughs> which is hard. But when I went to film school, I had already seen a lot of old movies, like Gone of the Wind or Casablanca, and I knew about them, or, the, you know, the Godfather, stuff like that. Um, it's that discussion that Bill that Bill Messe had, right, where you're able to speak a language. We looked back and we could appreciate even what was older. So bad effects, like I loved King Kong as a kid, and yeah, it had worse special effects than movies than newer movies that I grew up with for sure. Uh, but I still liked it, and I could still watch it even after Jurassic Park came out. And I was, I don't know, I was, well, I was, you know, 16 when that, or 15 when that came out. But I could still watch the original King Kong. And but does it King Kong stand me. a test of time? The original? Yeah, because because I could still watch it. Or at least, I think it will. I think certain, I think certain movies will. So I'm not saying this is a thing where the miss is like, oh, the effects are too dated. Nobody's going to like it because of that. I don't, and I'm not saying that. I don't think that's going to be the reason that, that film people this might fall out of favor with them at all. I think there's a style to this, like I say, that kind of B-movie, B-monster movie, but it's the 60s B-movie that I think is falling out of fashion with people. And I think they're going to get bored by, like you say, you are already hearing about it, the the performances, the characterizations. 
I think there's a broadness to it. I think that's that broad style of filmmaking, which I appreciate and can really like at times. Um, it's, it's sort of what helps me enjoy TV shows like the Andy Griffith show, right? (laughs) (laughs) I like broad characters sometimes there. I don't just see them as, I don't see them as unrealistic. I see them as portraying a certain type of person, but just doing it in a, in a broad way, uh, for a specific reason. And I think that could be falling out of favor. If you look at a video game like Silent Hill, the, the biggest inspiration came from Stephen King and right, a story right. like The Mist, right? And that's a video game aimed at a younger audience. Like the dem- the target demographic is like, I don't know, boys ages 14 to like younger adults, like a 25, right? The reason they made the game, like the, the biggest influence was because of something like The Mist. Like, so I don't know. Like the thing is, Patrick, like if I were to show King, like if we were going to Bill Massey's class, right? And we were to show his his film students the original King Kong. Most of them would tune out. And by the way, his his film class it's not just young adults. Like he has people in his film class who are like in their late thirties. Sure. And but 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 here's the thing. So when we were younger, back in the days when we had video stores and we can rent movies as a family, there was there was a lot of movies you can rent. Right. There were still a lot of movies being produced and released per week, but nowhere near as many has now in 2020. And now with Netflix and Hulu and Disney Plus and all of these like streaming services and like I think there's just too much. Like there's too many distractions that you can't sit down uh, a ten year old kid and say, "Hey, we're gonna watch the original King Kong" when he would, you know, he would want to say, "Watch the Mandalorian instead." Or see, I, I don't think so because now Dan, we're gonna let you get on this pretty soon too. But uh, no recently, recently my niece has watched all the Star Wars movies, and again, these are eight and nine year olds. And I asked them without any kind of – I wasn't saying what my opinion was. And I don't think I've ever <laughs> talked about Star Wars in front of my nieces. Why would I? <laughs> um, but I said, well, which ones were your favorite? And they said the originals. Now, those are the ones with the worst special effects. But, okay, but are they reading your articles? Are they going to the website? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that good filmmaking and good characters do hold up a certain – it doesn't matter whether a movie looks old, right? Kids can be fine with it. I do think, though, that there's like we we talked about this, uh, uh, His Girl Friday, like the screwball comedy has fallen out of favor. And there's got to be a reason why it's because that sense of humor is just I keep saying fallen out of favor, but I mean out of fashion. And it's because whatever the the quick witted screwball comedy humor just doesn't fly with people anymore. They don't make that movie anymore because it's not what people want to see anymore. Well, they try and it turns into like a Noah Baumbach disaster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it doesn't ever they they're not good at it anymore for one thing, but I also don't think audiences want to see that anymore. Now, I think once they maybe once they have seen a great one, they that it can stand the test of time, but like it will actually hit home for them and will be funny. But it's hard to say. There's like I say there's something about the mist. That I, it's just an inkling I have. I have this feeling that the, this movie isn't going to make it. But anyway, Dan, we haven't heard from you on this. No, no. <laughs> it, it's funny. I'm just thinking about the legacy of the mist. Like, I mean, here I picked up that paperback in that grocery store in Delavan, Wisconsin, you know, in 1984 or something like that. And and then they've made a bad video game out of it. They did an audio book out of it. They made this movie they did a TV series, right? Or a miniseries, right? Did anyone see that? It, it was a TV series, yeah. I think on Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, I watched a couple of those. It was an interesting... It was kind of like... It really drew all the main... Stretched, stretched it out, like all the main elements. Um, 
but uh, but it is kind of interesting that it's some people we keep tapping back into the to the mist like uh or you know like uh, like shows and movies and and uh and other entertainment like it, it's it seems to be something that we keep uh returning to after all these years i mean whatever that, that, that miniseries was like two years ago right so but it so in in some regard like i wonder if that the uh the mist as you know since it has these broad characters broad ideas um and survival that it's it's like this cart like this carte blanche like kind of a tabula rasa that you, somebody can seize and make something make something new out of uh, i was gonna say i think the concept is going the premise is, is gonna live on i think and i think king's books will will stand the test yes of time. but this this movie this particular itself, movie i'm wondering right, right. That's all. yeah yeah i wonder i wonder too because it it is very movie of the week and and um in an exceptional way. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, right, right. No, and 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 I don't mean that as a slight. I guess just more of a get your expectations um, set uh, that kind of way. And it's incredibly charming in that regard. So, but yeah, and like you said, I wonder if people have the appetite for for that kind of um, I don't know, that quaintness, something like that. We're going to agree to disagree because I really think that just based on the ending and the fact that it's so fun, I think people will still enjoy <laughs> it in a few years. But yeah. I'm looking at Rotten Tomatoes and they are still publishing reviews of the movie. And I mean, where, where not... do the people have it? Sorry? Where do the people have it? The people? Yeah, like... where did it, what, the people's rating of it? Oh, um, so the i'm not sure how to look at this i know it has like a 73 percent rating on rotten tomatoes it, 72 it should be at the 65 audience score oh that's the audience score okay 65 okay, yeah right yeah but but i will say this um they did make a tv show it is not an original property because it's clearly based on a stephen king uh novella right. And for all we know, someone will walk in. For all we know, someone will direct uh, a future adaptation of the novella, and it'll be way sure. better. But but I will recommend everyone read uh, one of my favorite critics, um, really really nice guy from Toronto. He's actually been on the uh, our podcast before, Adam Naiman. He has a great review over at The Ringer, and um, it's kind of like part of his ten best Stephen King movie adaptations, but. You, you can find the uh, the link over Rotten Tomatoes, and I highly recommend reading his review. Oh, cool. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, people should check this out. Whether or not I think it'll stand the test of time, that's just sort of an intuition thing. But um, I think people, it deserves to be seen for sure. But by the way, um, I do take issue with the uh, idea that people don't want screwball, screwball, ah, screwball <laughs> comedies anymore. And I, I think people just do not know what they want because. I mean, I've recommended His Girl Friday, and it happened one night, like so many times since like we recorded that podcast. Like we we didn't talk about it, it happened one night. We need to talk about it soon. It's like one we of my favorite. Yeah. Is it happened one night? The Titanic? Is that a Titanic? Yeah. No, no, it's Frank Capra. It starts Clark Gable, and um, oh my gosh, I don't remember um, his co-star. But um, yeah, it's a great movie. It's about a, a rich girl who runs away, and uh, Clark Cable's a news writer, and he finds her, and uh, they travel uh, across the country. It's absolutely fantastic. I, I I've got that. Movie. Oh yeah, all right. Uh, so I'd be that. very willing to do that one. I don't too. know why I thought that was a Titanic movie. I wonder if something yeah. a special magic night. Or, I don't know. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. 
I know what you're talking about. There's a Titanic movie with a similar title, but um, <laughs> this is the movie that inspired the creation of Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny is modeled after Clark Gable's oh, character really? Peter in this movie. Oh, yes. interesting. One of my oh, favorite cool. movies of all time. But anyways, I always I always recommend His Girl Friday and this film. It happened one night to my friends, and they all love it. Always. It never fails. They always love it. Yeah, and I like I say, I can see, like, His Girl Friday, I think, will stand the test of time. That's why I went with that one, because I think people will be able to appreciate that. I just... I have this feeling, Rick. What can I tell you? I just think that the mist is gonna is gonna slip away, fade away. Um, who knows? Maybe 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 I'll be wrong on this, and maybe it'll still play on the Sci Fi Channel if it's still around. It's it's just because whenever I see lists of the best Stephen King adaptations, the mist is always like on the top five. Sure. Yeah. For now. For now. For now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, we should probably wrap this up. Um, Dan, this is your opportunity to promote yourself. Where can we find you online? Uh, you can or find me at uh, danbrand.com. Uh, I've got my uh, illustrations and animations up there and Dan Brandsfield on uh, Instagram and Twitter. And uh, yeah, that was fun, guys. That was uh, nice chatting, chatting the mist with you guys tonight. Yeah, so I do want to – I'm going to pimp you a little bit here, Dan, uh, you, because you made those incredible The Thing uh, oh, char yeah. character <laughs> paintings, yeah, which yeah. one of which I have, the Palmer one. Yeah. Uh, so I'd say, like, anybody who's a fan of some of that stuff, you do have a few movie-related things up there. Yeah, uh, yeah. I would say check those out. Those things are awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I say, I've got, I've got one of them, and it's great. It's Palmer. It's, <laughs> that's right. That's a good one. Yeah, I think I had um, – uh, it's Bennings, Palmer, and uh, Watch Clark. I think that was yep. the other one. Yeah, Watch I Clark. To do them all, too. might as well get time on my hands now, right? <laughs> um, all right. So you can find me, of course. Uh, well, you can't really find me a ton of places. I'm. I have not been very active on Twitter lately or online in general, uh, just because of the whole lockdown thing. I tend to do my writing at coffee shops, and so much for that. Yeah. Can't do that right now. It's been kind of a drag. Um, yeah, so, but uh, hopefully I'll be publishing a few things here and there on Goomba Stop. Every now and again, I do get a video game to review. Uh, <laughs> Rick, where can we find you online? You can find me over at GoombaStomp.com. I usually write about movies, TV shows, wrestling, and video games, and of course on this podcast. And we also co-host the Nintendo podcast, N-Express, which is, once again, over at GoombaStomp.com. I also run the Twitter handle for GoombaStomp, which is GoombaStompMag, but it's just, you know, it's the Twitter handle for the, the website. I don't have my own personal Twitter because I don't really need social media. All right, that should do it. And next week we'll be back with a look at The Vast of Night. We'll talk to you then. <laughs>